Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 59. Early Christmas Eve, gallery brochure in hand, Junior returned to his apartment, puzzling over mysteries that had nothing to do with guiding stars and virgin births. Beyond the windows, the winter night sifted suitably down through the twinkling city. As he sat in his living room with a glass of dry sack in one hand and the picture of Celestina White in the other, he knew for a fact the seraphim had died in childbirth. He had seen the gathering of Negroes at her funeral in the cemetery, the day of Naomi's burial. He had heard Max Bellini's message on the maniac cop's antiphone. Anyway, if seraphim were still alive, she would only be 19 now too young to have graduated from the Academy of Art College. The striking resemblance between this artist and Seraphim, as well as the facts in the biographical sketch under the photo, argued that the two were sisters. This baffled Junior. To the best of his recollection, during the weeks that Seraphim had come to him for physical therapy, she had never mentioned an older sister, or any sister at all. In fact, though he strained hard to recall their conversations, he could dredge up nothing that Seraphim had said during therapy, as if he had been stone deaf in those days. The only things he retained were sensual impressions, the beauty of her face, the texture of her skin, the firmness of her flesh under his ministering hands. Again, he cast his line of memory into murky waters nearly four years in the past, to the night of passion that he had shared with Seraphim in the parsonage. As before... He could recall nothing she said, only the exquisite look of her, the nubile perfection of her body. In the minister's house, Junior had seen no indications of a sister. No family photos, no high school graduation portrait proudly framed. Of course, he had not been interested in their family, for he had been all consumed by seraphim. Besides, being a future-focused guy who believed that the past was a burden best shed, he never made an effort to nurture memories. Sentimental wallowing in nostalgia had none of the appeal for him that it had for most people. This dry sack assisted effort of recollection, however, brought back to him one thing in addition to all the sweet lubricious images of Seraphim naked. The voice of her father. On the tape recorder, the reverend droning on and on as Junior pinned the devote daughter to the mattress. As kinky and thrilling as it had been to make love to the girl while playing the recorded rough draft of a new sermon that she had been transcribing for her father, Junior could now recall nothing of what the reverend had said, only the tone and timbre of his voice. Whether instinct, nervous irritation, or merely the sherry should be blamed, he was troubled by the thought that there was something significant about the content of that tape. He turned the brochure in his hands to look at the front of it again. Gradually, he began to suspect the title of the exhibition might be what brought to mind the Reverend's unremembered sermon. This momentous day. Junior spoke the three words aloud and felt the strange resonance between them and his dim memories of Reverend White's voice on that long-ago night. Yet the link, if any actually existed, remained elusive. Reproducing the threefold brochure were samples of Celestina White's paintings, which Junior found naive, dull, and insipid in the extreme. She imbued her work with all the qualities that real artists disdained. Realistic detail, storytelling, beauty, optimism, and even charm. This wasn't art. This was pandering, mere illustration, more suitable for painting on velvet than on canvas.
Studying the brochure, Junior felt the best response to this artist's work was to go directly into the bathroom, stick one finger down his throat, and purge himself. Considering his medical history, however, he couldn't afford to be such an expressive critic. When he returned to the kitchen to add ice and sherry to his glass, he looked up White, Celestina, in the San Francisco phone directory. Her number was listed. Her address was not. He considered calling her, but he didn't know what he would say if she answered. Although he didn't believe in destiny, in fate, in anything more than himself and in his own ability to shape his future, Junior couldn't deny how extraordinary it was that this woman should cross his path at this precise moment in his life when he was frustrated to the point of cerebral hemorrhage by his inability to find Bartholomew, confused and nervous about the Phantom Singer and other apparently supernatural events in his life, and generally in a funk unlike any he had ever known before. Here was a link to Seraphim, and through Seraphim to Bartholomew. Adoption records would have been kept secret from Celestina as from everyone else, but perhaps she knew something about the fate of her sister's bastard son that Junior didn't know. A small detail that will seem insignificant to her, but might put him on the right trail at last. He must be careful in his approach to her. He dared not rush into this. Think it through. Devise a strategy. This valuable opportunity must not be wasted. With his refreshed drink, studying Celestina's photograph in the brochure, Junior returned to the living room. She was as stunning as her sister, but unlike her poor sister... She wasn't dead, and was, therefore, an appealing prospect for romance. From her, he must learn whatever she knew that might help him in the Bartholomew hunt, without alerting her to his motive. At the same time, there was no reason that they couldn't have a fling, a love affair, even a serious future together. You know, other than the fact that he sexually assaulted her sister. You know, but what's the past when you don't think about it? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's what Squint would have said. Squint. Squint. Squint, Squint. squint. How ironic it would be if Celestina, the aunt of Seraphim's bastard boy, proved to be the heartmate for whom Junior had been longing throughout the past few years of unsatisfying relationships and casual sex. This seemed unlikely, considering the jejune quality of her paintings, but perhaps he could help her to grow and to evolve as an artist. He was an open-minded man, without prejudices, so anything could happen after the child was found and, and, and killed, you know. He has a job to do. The sensual memories of his torrid evening with Seraphim had left Junior aroused. Unfortunately, the only female nearby was an industrial woman, and he wasn't that desperate. He'd been invited to a Christmas Eve celebration with a satanic theme, but he hadn't intended to go. The party was not being thrown by real Satanists, which might have been interesting, but by a group of young artists, all non-believers, who shared a wry sense of humor. Junior decided to attend the festivities, after all, motivated by the prospect of connecting with a woman more pliant than the Babel peripheral sculpture. Almost as an afterthought, as he was leaving, he tucked the brochure for this momentous day into a jacket pocket. There will be amusement value in hearing a group of cutting-edge young artists analyze Celestina's greeting card images. Besides, as the Academy of Art College was a premier school of its type on the West Coast, a few of the partygoers might actually know her and be able to give him some valuable background. The party raged in the cavernous loft on the third and top floor of a converted industrial building, the communal residence and studio of a group of artists who believed that art, sex, and politics were the three hammers of a violent revolution, or something like that. 
A nuclear-powered sound system blasted out the doors, Jefferson Airplane, the Mamas and the Papas, Strawberry Alarm Clock, Country Joe on the Fish, The Eleven Spoonful, Donovan, unfortunately, The Rolling Stones, annoyingly, and The Beatles, infuriatingly. Megatons of music crashed off the brick walls, made the mini-pane metal frame windows reverberate like the drumheads in a hard-marching military band, and created simultaneously an exhilarating sense of possibility and a sense of doom. The feeling that Armageddon was coming soon, but it was going to be fun. Both the red and the white wines were too cheap for Junior's taste. So he drank Dos Equis beer and got two kinds of high by inhaling enough secondhand pot smoke to cure the state of Virginia's entire annual production of hams. Among the two or three hundred partiers, some were tripping on acid, some were wired on speed. Some exhibited the particular excitability and talkativeness typical of cokeheads, but Junior succumbed to none of these temptations. Self-improvement and self-control mattered to him. He didn't approve of this degree of self-indulgence. Besides, he had noticed a tendency among dopers to get modeling, whereupon they sank into a confessional mood, seeking peace through rambling self-analysis and self-revelation. Dream was too private a person to behave in such a fashion. Furthermore, if drugs ever put him in a confessional mood, the consequence might be electrocution or poison gas or lethal injection, depending on the jurisdiction and the year in which he fell into an unbosoming frame of mind. Speaking of bosoms, everywhere in the law for brawless girls in sweaters and miniskirts, brawless girls in t-shirts and miniskirts, brawless girls in silk-lined rawhide vests and jeans, brawless girls in tie-dye sash tops with bare midriffs and calypso pants. Lots of guys moved through the crowd too, but Junior barely noticed him. The sole male guest in whom he took an interest, a big interest, was my mother. Oops, no cussing in this book. Watch me though. I caught myself. I almost cussed, but then I went and took it out. I didn't even edit that. I just stopped myself. I was like, this is a clean book, and I want to maintain the cleanness of the book. Y'all's kids are welcome. But the only male guest in whom he took an interest, a big interest, was Squint. The one-named painter whose three canvases were the only art on the walls on Junior's apartment. The artist, six foot four and 250 pounds, looked markedly more dangerous in person than his scary publicity photo. Still in his 20s, he had white hair that fell limp and straight to his shoulders. Dead white skin. His deep-set eyes, a silver gray as rain with an albino pink undertone, had a predatory glint as chilling as that in the eyes of a panther. Terrible scars slashed his face and red hash marks covered his big hands as though he frequently defended himself barehanded against men armed with swords. At the farthest end of the law from the stereo speakers, voices nevertheless had to be raised in even the most intimate exchanges. The artist who had created In the Baby's Brain Lie the Parasite of Doom, Virgin 6, however, possessed a voice as deep, sharp-edged, and penetrating as his talent. Sklint proved to be angry, suspicious, volatile, but also a man of tremendous intellectual power. A profound and dazzling conversationalist, he rattled off breathtaking insights into the human condition, astonishing yet unarguable opinions about art and revolutionary philosophical concepts. Later, except in the matter of ghosts, Junior would not be able to remember a single word of what Sklint had said, only that it had all been brilliant and really cool. Ghosts. Sklint was an atheist, and yet he believed in spirits. Here's how that works. Heaven, hell, and God do not exist. 
But human beings are as much energy as flesh. And when the flesh gives out, the energy goes on. We're the most stubborn, selfish, greedy, grubbing, vicious, psychotic, evil species in the universe, Glenn explained. And some of us just refuse to die. We're too hard-ass to die. The spirit is a prickly burr of energy that sometimes cleans the places and people that were once important to us. So then, you get haunted houses. Poor bastards still tormented by their dead wives and crap like that. And sometimes, the burr attaches itself to an embryo on some slut who's just been knocked up. So you get reincarnation. You don't need a god for all this. It's just the way things are. Life and the afterlife are the same place right here, right now. We're all just a bunch of filthy, scabby monkeys tumbling through an endless damn series of barrels. For two years, since finding the quarter in a cheeseburger, Junior had been searching for a metaphysics that he could embrace, that squared with all the truths that he had learned from Zed, and that didn't require him to acknowledge any power higher than himself. Here it was. Unexpected. Complete. He didn't fully understand the bit about monkeys and barrels, but he got the rest of it, and peace of a sort descended upon him. Junior would have liked to pursue spiritual matters with Sklint, but numerous other partiers wanted their time with the great man. In parting, sure that he would give the artist a laugh, Junior withdrew the brochure for this momentous day from his jacket, and coyly asked for an opinion of Celestina White's paintings. Based on the evidence, perhaps Sklint never laughed, regardless of how clever the joke. He scowled fiercely at the paintings in the brochure, returned to Junior, and snarled, Shoot the bitch. Assuming this criticism was amusing hyperbole, Junior laughed, but Sklint squinted those virtually colorless eyes, and Junior's laugh withered in his throat. Well, maybe that's how it'll work out, he said, wanting to be on Sklint's good side, but he was at once sorry he had spoken those words in front of witnesses. Using the brochure as an icebreaker, Junior circulated through the throng, seeking anyone who attended the Academy of Art College and might have met Celestina White. The critiques of her paintings were uniformly negative, frequently hilarious, but never as succinct and violent as Sklint's. Eventually, a brawless blonde in shiny white plastic boots, a white miniskirt, and a hot pink t-shirt featuring the silkscreen face of Albert Einstein said, Sure, I know her. Had some classes with her. She's nice enough, but she's kind of nerdy, especially for an Afro-American. I mean, they're never nerdy, am I right? You're right, except maybe for buckwheat. Who? She shouted, though they were perched side by side on the black leather love seat. Junior raised his voice even further. In those old movies, the little rascals. Me? I don't like anything old. This white chick's got a weird thing for old people, old buildings, old stuff in general. Like she doesn't realize she's young. You want to grab her, shake her, and say, hey, let's move on, you know? Those words right there are literally the words that this woman would now speak about racism. You want to just shake them and be like, hey, let's move on, you know? All lives matter, you know? It's not just black and white, you know? Because I have a friend who's black and he has a friend who's Asian. We're just limiting ourselves by saying black lives. I care about all lives, the Asian lives, and, and, and the Mexican lives, but not the homeless lives. 
Like, if they don't get off my stoop, I'm going to spray it with water. I swear to God, those homeless, they're just like, do you see them? Like, they're everywhere. But all lives matter except for theirs. And the kids that Trump put in cages, theirs neither. But all lives matter for the most part. Not the people who clean my house. I don't really care about them either. And not the teachers who teach my kids. That's their job. But all lives matter. All of them. Do you understand me? Not, not, not really... The people who I don't like, though, like, seriously, they could they could they could die. But everybody else's lives matter if they're white. Really, that's the bottom line. If they're white or if they're Asian, because I've never had a problem with an Asian person and I really like their food. But Mexicans and, and black people, y'all need to realize that our lives matter as much as yours do. Wait, you never said the Mexican lives matter. You're a racist. And you know it's racist to defend yourself against being called a racist. It's actually racist to call someone a racist. That would be her, like, 50 years in the future. The past is past. It's what? She shouted. Past. So true. But my late wife used to like those little rascal movies. You're married? She died. So young. Cancer, he said, because that was more tragic and far less suspicious than a fall from a fire tower. In commiseration, she put a hand on his thigh. It's been a tough few years, he said. Losing her and then getting out of Nam alive. The blonde's eyes widened. You were over there? He found it difficult to make a painful personal revelation sound sincere when delivered in a shout, but he managed well enough to bring a shine of tears to her eyes. Part of my left foot was shot off in this upcountry sweep we did. Oh, bummer. That sucks. Man, I hate this war. The blonde was coming on to him, just as a score of other women had done since his arrival, so Junior tried to balance seduction with information gathering. Putting his hand over the hand with which she was gently massaging his thigh, he said, I knew her brother and Nam. Then I got wounded, shipped out, lost touch. I'd like to find him. Bewildered, the blonde said, Whose brother? Celestina White. She have a brother? Great guy. Do you have an address for her? A way maybe I can get in touch about her brother? I didn't know her well. She didn't hang out or party much. Especially after the baby. So she's married? Junior said, figuring that maybe Celestina wasn't his heartmate after all. Could be. I haven't seen her in a while. No, I mean, you said baby. Oh, no, her sister. But then the sister died. Yeah, I know, but... So Celestina took it. It? The kid thing. The baby. Junior forgot all about seduction. And she... What? She adopted her sister's baby? Weird, huh? Little boy named Bartholomew? He asked. I never saw it. But his name was Bartholomew? For all I know, it was Pissant. What? I'm saying, for all I know, she took her hand off his thigh. What's all this about Celestina anyway? Excuse me, 
Junior said. He left the party and stood in the street for a while, taking slow, deep breaths, letting the brisk night air clean the pot smoke out of his lungs. Slow, deep breaths. Suddenly sober in spite of the beers he had drunk. Slow, deep breaths. As chilled as a slab of beef in the meat locker, but not because of the cold night. He was astonished that adoption records could be sealed and so closely guarded when the child was being placed with a member of its immediate family, with its mother's sister. Only two explanations occurred to him. First, bureaucracy slavishly followed the rules even when the rules made no sense. Second, the ugliest private detective in the world, Nolly Wollstone, was an incompetent dunce. Junior didn't care which explanation was correct. Only one thing mattered. The Bartholomew Hunt was at last nearing an end. On Wednesday, December 27th, Junior met Google, the document forger, in a theater during a matinee of Bonnie and Clyde. As instructed earlier by phone, Junior purchased a large box of raisinets and a box of milk duds to the refreshment stand, and then he sat in one of the last three rows of the center section, eating the milk duds, grimacing at the sticky noises his shoes made when he moved them on the tacky floor and waiting for Google to find him. Packed full of aftermath, the movie was too violent for Junior's taste. He had wanted to meet at a showing of Dr. Doolittle or the graduate, but Google, as paranoid as a lab rat after half a lifetime of electroshock experiments, insisted on choosing the theater. Although he related well to the theme of moral relativism and personal anatomy in a value-neutral world, Junior grew apprehensive about each impending scene of violence and closed his eyes against the prospect of blood. He resented having to endure 90 minutes of the film before Google finally settled into the seat beside him. The forger's cross eyes glow with reflected light from the screen. He licked his rubbery lips, and his prominent Adam's apple bobbled. Like to drain my pipes in that fate done away, huh? Junior regarded him with undisguised repulsion. Google didn't realize he was an object of disgust. He wiggled his eyebrows in what he evidently assumed to be an expression of male camaraderie, and then he nudged Junior with one elbow. Only a few theatergoers attended the matinee. No one sat near, so Junior and Google openly swapped packages. A 5x6 manila envelope to Google, a 9x12 to Junior. The papermaker withdrew a thick wad of $100 bills from his envelope and, squinting, inspected the currency in the flickering light. I'm leaving now, but you wait until the movie's over. Why don't you go and I wait? Because if you try that, I'll ram a shield through your eye. It was just a question, said Junior, and listen... If you leave too soon behind me, I got a guy watching, and he'll put a hollow point thirty-eight in your ass. It's it's just that I hate this movie. You're nuts. It's a classic. Hey, you eat them raisinets? Told you on the phone, I don't like them. Gimme. Junior gave the raisinets to him, and Google left the theater with his candy and his cash. The slow-motion death ballet in which Bonnie and Clyde were riddled with bullets was the worst moment Junior had ever heard in the film. He didn't see more than a brief glimpse of it because he sat with his eyes squeezed shut. Nine days previously, at Google's instructions, Junior had rented boxes at two mail receiving services, using the name John Pinchbeck at one, Richard Gaminer at the other, and then he had supplied those addresses to the papermaker. These were the two identities for which Google ultimately provided elaborate and convincing documentation. On Thursday, December 28th, employing forged driver's licenses and social security cards as identification, Junior opened small savings accounts and also rented safety deposit boxes for Pinchbeck and Gaminer at different banks with which he had never previously done business, using the mailing address that he had established earlier. 
In each savings account, he deposited $500 in cash. He tucked $20,000 in Chris's new bills into each safety deposit box. For Gaminer, exactly as for Pinchback, Google had provided a driver's license that was actually registered with the California Department of Motor Vehicles and that would, therefore, stand up to any cop's inspection. A legitimate social security card, a birth certificate actually on file with the Citus courthouse, and an authentic, valid passport. Junior kept both Ford's driver's licenses in his wallet, in addition to the one that featured his real name. He stowed everything else in Pinchback and Gaminer's safe deposit boxes along with the emergency cash. He also concluded arrangements to open an account for Gaminer in a Grand Cayman Island bank and one for Pinchback in Switzerland. That evening, he was filled with a greater sense of adventure than he had felt since arriving in the city from Oregon. Consequently, he treated himself to three glasses of a superb Bordeaux and a filet mignon in the same elegant hotel lounge where he had dined on his first night in San Francisco almost three years earlier. The glittering room appeared unchanged. Even the piano player appeared to be the man who had been the keyboard back then, though his yellow rose boutonniere and probably his tuxedo as well were new. A few attractive women were here alone, proof that social mores had changed dramatically in three years. Junior was aware of their hot gazes, their need, and he knew that he could have any of them. The stress that he currently felt wasn't the same as he so often relieved with women. This was an energizing tension, a not unpleasant tightening of the nerves, a delicious anticipation that he wanted to experience to its fullest. Until the gallery reception for Celestina on the evening that her show opened on January 12th. This tension could not be released by intercourse, but only by the killing of Bartholomew. And when that long stop moment arrived, Junior expected the relief that he experienced would far exceed mere orgasm. He had considered tracking down Celestina and the bastard boy prior to her exhibition. The alumni office of her college might be one route to her, and further inquiries in the city's fine arts community would no doubt eventually provide him with her address. Following Little Bartholomew's murder, however, people might remember the man who had been asking about the mother, Celestina. Junior wasn't just any man, either. Irresistibly handsome, he left an indelible impression on people, especially on women. Inevitably, the cops would come knocking on his door, sooner or later. Of course, he had the pinchbeck and gaminer identities waiting, two escape hatches, but he didn't want to use them. He liked his life on Russian Hill, and he was loath to leave it. Since he knew where Celestina would be on January 12th, there was no point in taking risks to find her sooner. He had plenty of time to prepare for their encounter, time to savor the sweet anticipation. Junior was paying his dinner check and calculating the tip when the pianist launched into someone to watch over me. Although he had expected it all evening, he twitched when he recognized the tune. As he'd proved to himself on his previous two visits, his first night in town and then two nights thereafter, this number was merely part of the pianist's repertoire. Nothing supernatural here. Nevertheless, when he signed the credit card form, his signature looked shaky. Junior hadn't suffered a paranormal experience since the early morning hours of October 18th, when he drifted up from a vile dream of worms and beetles to hear the ghostly singer's faint a cappella serenade. Shouting at her to shut up, he had awakened neighbors. Now the hateful music unnerved him. He became convinced that if he went home alone, the Phantom Chanteuse, whether Victoria Bressler's vengeful ghost or something else, would croon to him once more. He wanted company and distraction after all. An exceptionally attractive woman, alone at the bar, stirred his desire.
Glossy black hair, the tresses of night itself shorn from the sky. Olive complexion, no less smooth than the skin of a Kalamata. Eyes as lustrous as pools, shimmering with the reflection of eternity and stars. Wow. She inspired the poet in him. Her elegance was appealing. A pink Chanel suit with knee-length skirt. A strand of pearls. Her figure was spectacular, but she didn't flaunt it. She was even wearing a bra. In this age of bold, erotic fashion, her more demure style was enormously seductive. Settling onto the empty stool beside this beauty, Junior offered to buy her a drink, and she accepted. Renee Vivi spoke with a silken southern accent, vivacious without being cloyingly coquettish, well-educated and well-read but never pretentious, directing her conversation without seeming either bold or opinionated. She was charming company. She appeared to be in her early 30s, perhaps six years older than Junior, but he didn't hold that against her. He wasn't any more prejudiced against older people than he was against people of other races and ethnic origins. Whether making love or killing, he was never guided by bigotry. A private little joke with himself, but true. He wondered what it would be like to make love to Renee and kill her. Only once had he killed without good reason, and that had been one of the infuriating Bartholomews. Prosser and Terralinda, a man. On that occasion, no erotic element had been involved. This would be a first. Junior Kane definitely was not a crazed sex killer, not driven to homicide by weird lust beyond his control. A single night of sex and death, an indulgence never to be repeated, wouldn't require serious self-examination or reconsideration of his self-image. Twice would indicate a dangerous mania. Three times would be indefensible, but once was healthy experimentation, a learning experience. Any true adventurer will understand. When Renee, sweetly oblivious of her looming doom, claimed to have inherited a sizable industrial valve fortune, Junior thought she might be inventing the wealth or at least exaggerating to make herself more desirable. But when he accompanied her back to her place, he discovered a level of luxury that proved she wasn't a shop girl with fantasies. Escorting her home didn't require either a car or a long walk because she lived upstairs in the hotel where he'd had dinner. The top three floors of the building featured enormous owner-occupied apartments. Stepping into her digs was like passing through a time machine into another century, traveling in space as well to the Europe of Louis XIV. The expansive, high-ceiling rooms overwhelmed the eye with the rich, somber colors and the heavy form of Baroque art and furniture. Shells, acanthus leaves, volutes, garlands, and scrolls, often gilded, decorated the museum-quality antique Bombay chests, chairs, tables, massive mirrors, cabinets, and etageres. Junior realized that killing Renee on this very night might be an unthinkable waste. Instead, he could marry her first, enjoy her for a while, and eventually arrange an accident or suicide that left him with all, or at least a significant portion of, her assets. This wasn't thrill killing, which, now that he had time to think about it, he realized was beneath him. Even if in the service of personal growth, this would be murder for good. Justifiable cause. During the past few years, he had discovered that a few lousy million could buy even more freedom than he had thought when he had shoved Naomi off the fire tower. Great wealth, 50 or 100 million, would purchase not only greater freedom, and not just the ability to pursue even more ambitious self-improvement, but also power. The prospect of power intrigued Junior. He hadn't the slightest doubt that eventually he would romance Renee in a marriage. Regardless of her wealth and sophistication, 
He could shape women to his desire as easily as Clint could paint his brilliant visions on canvas, easier than Roth Griskin could cast bronze into disturbing works of art. Besides, even before he had fully turned on his charm, before he had shown her that a ride on the Junior Kane love machine would make other men seem forever inadequate, Renee was so hot for him that it might have been wise to open a bottle of champagne to douse her when spontaneous combustion destroyed her Chanel suit. In the living room, the central and largest window framed a magnificent view, and swag silk brocatel draperies framed the window. An oversized, hand-painted, and heavily gilded chaise lounge, upholstered in exquisite tapestry, stood against this backdrop of city and silk, and Renee pulled Junior down upon the chaise, desperate to be ravished there. Her mouth was as greedy as it was ripe, and her pliant body radiated volcanic heat. And as Junior slipped his hands under her skirt, his mind teemed with thoughts of sex and wealth and power, until he discovered that the heiress was an heir, with genitalia better suited to boxer shorts and a silk lingerie. He exploded off Renee with the velocity of a high-powered rifle fire. Stunned, disgusted, humiliated, he backed away from the change lounge, spluttering, wiping at his tongue, cursing. Incredibly, Renee came after him, slinky and seductive, trying to calm him and lure him back into an embrace. Junior wanted to kill her. Kill him. Whatever. But he sensed that Renee knew more than a little about dirty fighting, and that the outcome of a violent confrontation would not be easy to predict. When Renee realized that this rejection was complete and final, she, he, whatever, was transformed from well-sugared southern lady to bitter, venomous reptile. Eyes glittering with fury, lips twisted and skinned back from her teeth, she called him all kind of bastard, stringing epithets together so effortlessly and colorfully that she enhanced his vocabulary more than had all the take-home study course that he had ever taken combined. And face it, pretty boy, you knew what I was from the moment you offered to buy me a drink. You knew, and you wanted it. You wanted me. And then when we got right down to the nasty, you lost your nerve. Lost your nerve, pretty boy, but not your need. Backing off, trying to find his way to the foyer and front door, afraid that if he stumbled over a chair, she'd descend on him like a screaming hawk upon a mouse. Junior denied her accusation. You're crazy. How could I know? Look at you. How could I possibly know? I've got an obvious Adam's apple, don't I? She shrieked. Yes, she did. She had one, but not much of one. And compared to the Macintosh and Google's throat, this was just a bitty crab apple. Easy to overlook, not excessive for a woman. And what about my hands, pretty boy? My hands, she snarled. Hers were the most feminine hands he had ever seen. Slender, soft, prettier than Naomi's. He had no idea what she was talking about. Risking all, he turned his back to her and fled, and in spite of his expectations to the contrary, she allowed him to escape. Later, at home, he gargled until he had drained half a bottle of mint-flavored mouthwash, took the longest shower of his life, and then used the other half of the mouthwash. He threw away his necktie, because in the elevator on the way down from Renee's, or Rennie's, penthouse, and again on the walk back to his apartment, he had scrubbed his tongue with it. On further consideration, he threw away everything he had been wearing, including his shoes. He swore that he would throw away all memory of this incident as well. In Caesar Zed's best-selling How to Deny the Power of the Past, the author offers a series of techniques for expunging forever all recollection of these events that cause us psychological damage, pain, or even merely embarrassment. 
Dream went to bed with his precious copy of this book and a snifter of cognac filled almost to the brim. There was a valuable lesson to be learned from the encounter with Rene Vivi. Many things in this life are not what they appear to be at first. To Junior, however, the lesson was not worth learning if he had to live with the vivid memory of his humiliation. By the grace of Caesar's Ed and Remy Martin, Junior eventually slipped into undulant currents of sleep. And as he drifted away on those velvet tides, he took some solace from the thought that come what may, December 29th would be a better day than December 28th. He was wrong about this. On the final Friday of every month, in sunshine and in rain, Junior routinely took a walking tour of the six galleries that were his very favorites, browsing leisurely in each and chatting up the galleriers, with the one o'clock break for lunch at the St. Francis Hotel. This was a tradition with him, and invariably at the end of each day, he felt wonderfully cozy. Friday, December 29th, was a grand day, cool but not cold, high scattered clouds ornamenting a wedgewood blue sky. The streets were agreeably a bustle, but not swarming like the corridors of a hive as sometimes they could be. San Franciscans, reliably a pleasant lot, were still in the holiday mood and, therefore, even quicker to smile and more courteous than usual. Following a splendid lunch, having just left the fourth gallery on his list and strolling towards the fifth, Junior didn't at once see the source of the quarters. Indeed, when the first three rapid-fire coins hit the side of his face, he didn't even know what they were. Startled, he flinched and looked down as he heard them ring off the sidewalk. Snap, snap, snap. Three more quarters ricocheted off the left side of his face, temple, cheek, jaw. As the unwanted change pinged against the concrete of his feet, Junior, snap, snap, saw the source of the next two rounds. They spit out of the vertical pace slot on the newspaper vending machine. One hit his nose and the other rang off his teeth. The machine, one in the bank of four, wasn't filled with ordinary newspapers, which only cost a dime, but with a raunchy tabloid aimed at heterosexual swingers. The slamming of Junior's heart sounded as loud to him as mortar rounds. He stepped back and sideways, out of the vending machine's line of fire. As though one of the quarters had dropped into his ears and triggered a golden oldie in the jukebox of his mind, Junior heard Vanadium's voice in the hospital room in Spruce Hills on the night of the day when Naomi died. When you cut Naomi's string, you put an end to the effects that her music would have had on the lives of others and on the shape of the future. Another machine beside the first, stocked with copies of a sexually explicit publication for gays, fired a quarter to hit Junior's forehead. The next snapped against the bridge of his nose. You struck a discord that could be heard, however faintly, all the way to the farthest end of the universe. Had Junior been chest deep in wet concrete, he would have been more mobile than he was now. He had no feeling in his legs. Unable to run, he raised his arms defensively, crossing them in front of his face, though the impact of the coins wasn't painful. Volleys flicked off his fingers, palms, and wrists. That discord sets up lots of other vibrations, some of which will return to you in ways that you might expect. The vending machines were designed to accept quarters, not to eject them. They didn't make change. Mechanically, this barrage wasn't possible. In some in ways you can never see coming. Two teenage boys and one elderly woman scrambled across the sidewalk, grabbing at the ringing rain of quarters. They caught some, but others bounced and twirled through their grasping fingers, rolling, spinning away into the gutter. Other things you couldn't have seen coming? I'm the worst. In addition to these scavengers... Another presence was here, unseen but not unfelt. 
The chill of this invisible entity pierced Junior to the marrow. The stubborn, vicious, psychotic, prickly burst spirit of Thomas Vanadium, maniac cop, not satisfied to haunt the house in which he had died, not ready yet to seek reincarnation, but instead pursuing his beleaguered suspect even after death, capering, to paraphrase Sklint, like an invisible, filthy, scabby monkey here on the city street in bright daylight. Of the things you couldn't have seen coming, I'm the worst. One of the coin seekers knocked against Junior, drawing him loose of his paralysis. When he stumbled out of the line of fire of the second vending machine, a third machine shot quarters at him. Of the things you couldn't have seen coming, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Mocked by the silvery ping-ping jingle of the maniac detective emptying his ghostly pockets, Junior ran. Chapter 60 Kathleen in the candlelight, her ginger eyes a glimmer with images of the amber flame. Icy martinis, extra olives in a shallow white dish. Beyond the tableside window, the legendary bay glimmered too, darker and colder than Kathleen's eyes, not a fraction as deep. Nolly, telling the story of his day's work, pauses the waiter delivered two orders of the crab cake appetizer with mustard sauce. Nolly, Miss Wolston, enjoy. For the first few bites of crab and a light cornmeal crust, Nolly suspended their conversation. Bliss. Kathleen watched him with obvious amusement, aware that he was savoring her suspense as much as he was the appetizer. Piano music drifted into the restaurant from the adjacent bar, so soft and so yet sprightly that it made the clink of silverware seem like music, too. At last, he said, and there he is, hands in front of his face, quarters bouncing off him. These kids and this old lady scrambling around him to snare some change. Grinning, Kathleen said, so the gimmick actually worked. Nolly nodded. Jimmy Gadget earned his money this time for sure. The subcontractor who built the quarter spitting coin boxes was James Hunnicolt, but everyone called him Jimmy Gadget. He specialized in electronic eavesdropping, building cameras and recorders into the most unlikely objects, but he could do just about anything requiring inventive mechanical design and construction. A couple of quarters hit him in the teeth, Nolly said. I approve of anything that makes business for dentists. I wish I could describe his face. Frosty the Snowman was never that white. The surveillance van is parked right there, two spaces south of the vending machines. A real ringside view, so entertaining. I felt I should have paid for those seats. When a third machine starts whizzing coins at him, he bolts like a kid running a graveyard at midnight on a dare. Nolly laughed, remembering. More fun than divorce work, huh? You should have seen this, Kathleen. He's dodging people on the sidewalk, shoving them out of his way when he can't dodge them. Three long blocks Jimmy and I watched the creep, until he turned the corner. Three long blocks, all uphill, and it's a hill that would kill an Olympic athlete, but he doesn't slow down once. Man had a ghost on his butt. I think he believed it. This is a crazy damn wonderful case, she said, shaking her head. Soon as Kane is out of sight, we yank up our tricky vending machines, then haul the real ones out of the van and bolt them down again. Slick, fast. People are still picking up quarters when we finish. And get this, they want to know where the camera is. You mean, yeah, they think we're a candid camera. So Jimmy points to this United Parcells truck parked across the street and says the cameras are in there. She clapped her hands in delight. When we pull away, people are waving across the street at the UPS truck and the driver, he sees them. So he stands there, kind of confused, and then he waves back. 
Nolly adored her laugh, so musical and girlish. He would have made all sorts of a fool out of himself any time just to hear it. The busboy swept the empty appetizer plates away as the waiter arrived simultaneously with small salads. Fresh martinis followed. Why do you think he's spending his money for all this tricky stuff? Kathleen wondered, not for the first time. He says he has a moral responsibility. Yeah, but I've been thinking about that. If he feels some kind of responsibility, then why did he ever represent Kane in the first place? He's an attorney, and this grieving husband comes from what a big liability case. There's, there's money to be made. Even if he thinks maybe the wife was pushed? Nolly shrugged. He, he can't know for sure. And anyway, he didn't get the pushed idea until he had already taken the case. Kane got millions. What was Simon's fee? 20%. bucks. Deduct what he's paid you, and he's still close to eight big ones ahead. Simon's a good man. Now that he pretty much knows Kane pushed the wife, he doesn't feel better about representing him just because the payoff was big. And in the current case, he's not Kane's lawyer, so there's no conflict of interest. No ethics problem. So he's got a chance to set things right a little. In January 1965, Magison has sent Kane to Nolly as a client. Not sure why the creep needed a private detective. That had turned out to be the business about Sarah from White's baby. Simon's warning to be careful of Enoch Kane helped to shape Nolly's decision to withhold the information about the child's placement. Ten months later, Simon called again, also regarding Kane, but this time the attorney was a client and Kane was a target. What Simon wanted Nolly to do was strange, to say the least. And it could be construed as harassment, but none of it was exactly illegal. And for two years, beginning with the quarter and the cheeseburger and ending with the coin-spitting machines... All of it had been great fun. Well, Kathleen said, even if the money wasn't so nice, I'd be sorry to see this case end. Me too, but it's not really over till we meet the man. Two weeks ago. I'm not going to miss that. I've cleared all appointments off my calendar. Nolly raised his martini glass in a toast. To Kathleen Clerkel Wooston, dentist and associate detective. She returned the toast. To my Nolly husband and best ever boyfriend god he loved her veal fit for kings said their waiter delivering the entrees and one taste confirmed his promise the glimmering bay and the shimmering amber candlelight provided the perfect atmosphere for the song that arose now from the piano in the bar although the piano was at some distance and the restaurant was a little noisy kathleen recognized the tune at once she looked up from her veal her eyes full of merriment I request, he admitted. I was hoping you'd sing. Even in this soft light, Nolly could see that she was blushing like a young girl. She glanced around at the nearby tables. Considering that I'm your best ever boyfriend and this is our song. She raised her eyebrows at our song. Nolly said, we've never really had a song of our own in spite of all the dancing we do. I think this is a good one. But so far, you've only sang it to another man. She put down her fork, glanced around the restaurant once more, and leaned across the table. Blushing brighter, she softly sang the opening lines of someone to watch over me. An older woman at the next table said, You've got a very lovely voice, dear. Embarrassed, Kathleen stopped singing, but to the other woman, Nolly said, It is a lovely voice, isn't it? Haunting, I think.
916-633-1537. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. You know when you get to the top of the hill on a roller coaster? And then you have that click, click before the drop. It sounds kind of like this. Like you hear the three clicks and then it's away you go. And it's like a whirlwind of like these great feelings and emotions and just exuberance. Well, let me tell y'all folks. Leave a review on Spotify. You can also leave a review on a Podchaser and copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app you can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.